Beloved congregation of our Lord, Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, the text of this morning deals with the letter to the church at Ephesus given to John the Apostle in a vision that he received on the island of Patmos. What do you know about the city of Ephesus and its inhabitants? Well, one thing we know, the citizens of that city knew what hard work was all about. We know, for example, that in the 3rd century before Christ, the Ephesians dug a harbor which was large enough to accommodate the largest ships from all over the world. They had some pretty big ships in those days. It was the busiest and the biggest harbor in the world of that day. Considering that Ephesus was some five and a half kilometers from the Aegean Sea, you can just imagine what it will have taken to dig such a large and deep harbor. Of course, in those days, they did not have machinery like we do today. But this work was done by hand. Quite an undertaking. Quite an accomplishment. However, by the middle of the first century after Christ, the harbor was beginning to be filled in with silt. This occurred because of the nearby river Keister, which brought all kinds of pebbles and sand, filling up not only the harbor, but also constantly changing the coastline. For the Ephesian citizens to maintain their position and influence as a seaport, they would have to constantly dredge the harbor and do repairs. We know from ancient writings and from archaeology that during New Testament times, in the year 64 after Christ to be exact, major maintenance work was done. And that it was also maintained for quite some time afterwards. The city further boasted of the temple of the goddess Artemis, also known as the goddess Diana. This temple, from all accounts, was so beautiful and magnificent that it had become known as one of the seven wonders of the world. It measured 120 meters long, 73 meters wide, and 18 meters high, and the roof was supported by 117 columns. It will also have taken an enormous effort and work to put up such a magnificent structure. One of the reasons of the prosperity of Ephesus was that very temple. People from all over the world came there to worship. In Acts 19, verse 35, the great fame of that temple is even mentioned. There, the city clerk of Ephesus says that Ephesus is known all over the world as the guardian of the temple of the great Diana, the great Artemis, and her image. As to the city of Ephesus itself, even by today's standards, this city was quite large, containing some 300,000 inhabitants. It also had a very large theater which could accommodate up to 24,000 people at a time. That theater was also quite an engineering feat. 
For even now, in the midst of its ruins, its marvelous acoustics are still quite evident. Even though it is enormously large, microphones are not needed in order to hear those on the platform below. You can well imagine that also that theater, to make it, would have taken a lot of hard work and a lot of ingenuity. Today, however, Ephesus is no longer in existence. For no matter how well constructed and beautiful any man-made structure may be, it is not, if it is not constantly and diligently maintained, in the end it will come to ruin. This is exactly what happened. We know, however, where the ruins are, and which in the meantime have been extensively excavated. I've seen them myself. The ruins give you a good idea of what the city, especially the rich part of the city, will have been like. It even had indoor plumbing with hot water. These ruins of that old city are now completely landlocked. That is because at one point the hard work of dredging the harbor also ceased. When that happened, it lost its influence. People began to abandon the city, and the city eventually ceased to exist. Now, it was in that flourishing city of Ephesus that Paul established church. On his way to Corinth, Paul visited there on his second missionary tour. During that first visit, Paul taught there, as we know from the account in Acts, he taught there with great zeal. However, at first time he couldn't stay there very long, but he promised that he would come back, which is what he did. On his third missionary tour, he spent close to three years there. Some of the people embraced the gospel with great enthusiasm, and the church that he established became quite strong. The church also spread out from there, and so Ephesus became the mother church of many other churches. And that is why, of the seven churches, Ephesus is mentioned first. But now comes this vision to John as recorded in Revelation 2. This comes some 40 years after Paul had established the church. At this point, the original members will have been quite old, and a new generation will have sprung up. So what happened in those 40 years? Well, although the Lord says some good things about the church, he also had to make some pointed observations and give a strong warning. The warning is that the church at Ephesus has forsaken her first love. They are no longer working hard at being a pure, at being a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they are in danger of letting the good work that was done there in the past peter out to nothing. The church was threatening to fall apart, to come to ruin. So it was a very serious warning. And it is not just anyone who gives these warnings. 
No, they are given by him who sits on the throne, by him who rules all things, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For he was the one who was walking there amongst the lampstands, and those lampstands refer to the seven churches. And they, in turn, represent the New Testament church from the beginning of their establishment to the last day. And so, that also applies to today. Also the church, St. Albert. Now, what exactly does Jesus tell them to do? Well, he puts them back to work. He tells them that they must rekindle their first love. They must continue to work hard. Just because they worked hard at one time doesn't mean that now they have made it. They can't slough off. What exactly is required from them? What does God require from us? Well, that's what I want to preach to you about. Summarize this message as follows. Lord Jesus exhorts the church at Ephesus to rekindle her first love. First, we look at the love they received. Secondly, the love they lost. Thirdly, the love that must be restored. So, love received, love lost, love restored. It says that the letter is written to the angel of the church at Ephesus. But the angel is meant the minister of that congregation for the word angel, angelos, in Greek means messenger. And that's what a minister is. A minister is a messenger from God. So every time you have a minister standing here in front of you, you actually have an angel standing in front of you. Also this morning. And this letter begins with complimentary remarks. Church's Ephesus is commended for her hard works and perseverance. <clears throat> the idolatry in that city was great. They worshipped the goddess Artemis. All kinds of immorality was associated with such idolatry. You would not even want to mention the sort of things done in honor of that goddess. What they did in that temple was so perverse and so decadent that even today it would be considered utterly shameful. When the people at Ephesus became converted, they were, they of course renounced such depraved worship. And among the converts were also many Jews. But many other Jews were not converted. That's quite clear from Acts 19. For those unconverted Jews had by and large accommodated themselves to the pagan practices and ideology of heathen society. For that reason, those unconverted Jews in Ephesus were just as upset by the message that Paul gave as the rest of the people. They too contributed to the riot that followed because of the success that Paul had in having the people renounce their heathen practices for it hurt their businesses of selling silver shrines of the goddess Diana. No doubt, it will have been very hard to eradicate all those vestiges of heathen practices. The people 
church at Ephesus had previously engaged in. It's a lot of work to do that. You lose friends, you lose your standing in society, so you have to work hard at it. You have to be committed. The text says that some men also came with false teachings, people to lead them astray. And even these people even claimed themselves to be apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Ephesus is commended for having seen through these false prophets. People of the church tested what these men had to say with the word of God and compared it to what Paul had taught them. And it didn't add up. And so they dealt with those false teachers accordingly. They knew what to do. They had to be ousted from the church. The text also speaks about the Nicolaitans. Who are they? Well, it was a radical sect within the church that wanted to compromise their faith with the pagan practices of the world. In the letter to Pergamum, their sins are compared to the teachings of Balaam. Balaam, as you may remember, advised Balak, the king of the Moabites, to bring about Israel's downfall. You know how Balaam did that? He did that by inviting the Israelites to worship the Moabite gods and to engage in intermarriage and in the sexual immoralities connected with Moabite religious practices. In Jewish thought, Balaam was the symbol of all that led men to obscene conduct and the forsaking of God. The ungodly at ungodly practices at Thyatira are called the deep things of Satan. But Jesus says, you hated the work of the Nicolaitans. Great. They're commended for that. God says he also hates their works. So in that regard, the church at Ephesus had been faithful. Those teachers, those false teachers were exposed. They were properly dealt with. They did their work. Not easy to do that kind of thing. Anybody who has been actively involved in the church, in church life, knows that dealing with false teachings and false prophets is a difficult thing to do. False teachings come through false people and strong personalities. It takes a lot of wisdom and know-how and energy and perseverance to expose such falsehoods. False teachers always have a following, and they will use all kinds of tactics in order to advance their cause. They will discredit others. They will resort to all kinds of strategies such as slander and twisting of words. They will use shunning. They will isolate those people who hold a different view. False teachers know exactly how to hurt those people who oppose them. For the Ephesians to have gone through that required strong faith and a complete commitment to the truth of God's word. They had to have the spiritual maturity not to allow personal attacks to derail them. And also in that regard, Lord Jesus says that they have done well. They withstood the test. They endured hardships for the sake of his name. They did not grow weary. That sometimes happens. You want to throw in the towel and you say, well, I, I don't want anything to do with this business anymore. And then you walk away from your troubles. Some people 
even walk away from the church during difficult circumstances. And in so doing, in the end, they may walk away from God himself. But the Ephesians had fought a good fight. They had heeded the words of Paul who told the Ephesians elder that they must pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and to care for the church of God. Which is what they did. They cared for the church of God. They paid careful attention. And that, in many ways, they continue to do so. Preaching from the pulpit at Ephesus was orthodox. The minister of that congregation came with the word of God, and the elders and the people in the pew made sure that that was taking place. During these first 40 years of existence, the good doctrine was maintained, no problem. But now, what does the Holy Spirit say to the church in Ephesus? But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So after all that, that's what they hear. Is that unfair? Well, let's look at that. Love congregation, in this sinful world, you can never sit back and just relax. You can never say in any situation that now you've got it all licked. I'm exactly at the place where I want to be That's where I want to stay. And now I don't have to work at it anymore. But the moment you think that is the moment a false sense of security and deterioration sets in. The very moment you are no longer paying careful attention is the very moment you begin to backslide. But then you are no longer open to correction. But why should you be? You've already done what's necessary. Now you've made it. Can you imagine if you did that in your marriage? You no longer worked at your marriage, then your love for your wife or your husband will soon die. Not enough to have declared your undying love for your wife or husband at the time of your marriage. No, that is something he or she needs to hear Throughout the marriage, not just in words, but especially in deeds. You have to continue to rekindle those wonderful feelings of love that you had at the beginning of your marriage. You have to put that same love into action throughout your whole marriage. You even have to improve on that initial love. You must want to do better all the time. A good marriage takes continual at work. Well, that is especially the way it is with our marriage to the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we, the church of God, is called the bride of Christ. We are his bride. And he is the groom. And what a groom we have. He has adorned us in a most wonderful way, hasn't he? He has given you and me everything we need for physical and eternal life. And that's what he did for the church at Ephesus as well. The Lord Jesus Christ, through the ministry of Paul, took these people out of that horrible heathen world with its terrible decadent practices 
and all the diseases and everything else that came with that, and he rescued them from it all. And God forgave them their sins. And on top of that all, he gave them eternal life. For faith alone. Didn't have to do anything for this. It is theirs free of charge. For that reason, they were also so zealous for the Lord. For they realized how rich they had become. And they did not want anybody to come along now with such such as the false prophets, to take away any of those riches. God requires a response to his love. It has to be a continual response. That's where they failed. At one point, they started becoming complacent. They no longer were struggling for the truth. They began to have a false sense of security. That new generation there in Ephesus was not prepared to do the same work as their parents had done. It was enough for them that their parents had fought the good fight of the faith. Now, they didn't have to work so hard anymore. So, they became lazy. They took it all for granted. It happened. Brothers and sisters, that includes you, boys and girls. It happened to all of us. That's why this letter is also meant for me and for you. For sure, we may be also very thankful for the fact that we belong to a faithful and true church. We may be thankful for the confessions that have been passed down to us. There you see the struggles of the past. It's a great heritage that we have received from our fathers. And when it comes to the doctrine, we are tremendously rich indeed. But it doesn't mean that now we can come complacent. Let me ask you, how well do you know your Bible and your confessions? Some of you may know it quite well. Many of you do. But do you really know it? Just because our fathers and forefathers fought a good fight of the faith does not mean that now you can kind of put it on the shelf and not think about the sacrifices that had to be made in order to come to that confession, the fights that they had to have, just to make sure that the Bible in all its truth is summarized properly. No, you have to make that doctrine your own. You have to live it. You have to cherish it. And so you have to study God's word. You have to know the confessions for yourselves so that you don't fall back into the same heresies. And that's easy to to occur. You have to know what the scriptures say. You have to know what God is saying to us and how we are to respond to him. It's more than just discussing and studying God's words, however, and listening to each other. The word must be put into practice. Must be put into practice in our very lives. For belonging to the true church also means being the true church. That starts with you and me. You cannot have the one without the other. If you love the Lord your God, then that cannot be otherwise than that you also love 
God's people. You know what true love is all about? True love is this, says John in his first letter, to know God's commandment. That's love. To love means to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. When you love God, you must do your utmost to keep his commandments at all costs. Take sacrifice, but take self-denial that takes understanding why God gave us the laws in the first place, because he loves us. He does not want us to go astray. It is a description of his relationship with us. The first part of the law teaches us to love God. But what does it mean to love God? Does it mean that you love him because he saves you and he's going to give you a place in heaven? No. At least that's not where you start. You love him because you see him for the almighty creator that he is. He is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. And he is the God who lives in your heart through his Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, look at this beautiful creation. There is no end to its beauty and glory. It struck me again this morning as I drove up here from Spruce Grove. Beautiful. God's creation is. See how everything fits together. It's mind-boggling. And it's totally beyond our understanding how anybody could have created something so absolutely wonderful. Think that this came about by evolution. Totally laughable. And don't forget that now we're talking about a fallen world of a world that is utterly ruined because of sin. And yet you can see God's mighty hand in it all. Imagine what a perfect world would have been like the way it was in paradise. And can you imagine what's going to be like in the, after the second coming of Christ? It makes you want to stand up and shout and clap for joy. For it is the Almighty God who has chosen you and me to be the crown of his beautiful creation. Can you imagine? For when you realize what a sinful and sick, insignificant little creature you and I are, then you cannot help but stand in awe of him and love him. The more you see the greatness of your God and the great love that he has for you and for me, then you cannot help but love him. The more you see your sins, the more you love your God. He loved you so much that he sent his son into this miserable world. How he suffered so that we can live and enjoy this creation. No doubt that's also some of the love that those Ephesians first felt when they were introduced to that almighty God by Paul. What a tremendous difference that made in their lives. Before they were in the grip of Satan. They were blind. They lived only to satisfy their own flesh and desires. And when you do that, brothers and sisters, you cannot be happy. Maybe for the moment. 
but it's unsustainable. But then you have no purpose except to please yourself, and that is such an empty pursuit. And when you know God, a whole new world opens up to you. You feel fulfilled serving him and others. And that's the first love that they had. We must also love our neighbors as ourselves. A healthy and a vibrant church shows love in the way that the members uh, interact with each other. And such love is shown in the way how compassionate you are, also in the way that you admonish one another and teach one another, in the way that you show hospitality to one another, in the way that you help one another, kind and patient with each other, just as God is with you. You do not hold grudges against those whom you consider to have been wronged in the past, and you don't shun those with whom you disagree. No, you reach out to one another especially those who are hard to reach out to. Now, I know that many of these things you do as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you a little bit, preaching to you for many years, for 25 years. I've observed that, observed your love. That's wonderful, the way it ought to be. But I'm sure that you're not any different from most other churches where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Where a lot of people are not actively involved in the church. Often many people just show up on a Sunday morning, perhaps in the afternoon. There is no real involvement, no engagement. Often also the case that the inactive members of the church are the ones who try to tear the church apart by complaining, by indifference, by fault finding, by grumbling. And so the Lord Jesus says also to you and to me, where is your first love? You had it to begin with. Where is it now? Lord Jesus Christ says that the Ephesians are to rekindle the love that he had at first. At first they loved that salvation that he had been given, the freedom that they now had, the freedom from sins, the freedom from fear, the freedom from envy and jealousy and hatred. Isn't that wonderful? Brothers and sisters, are you also so excited about the gift of salvation? If not, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with your faith? Are you taking for granted what God has given you? Don't. Satan is always at work at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at work in your heart, he is trying to tear the church down. He wants you and me to be lazy. He wants you and me to take it all for granted. But when you do that, well, then you're no longer on your guard. Now you are no longer building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and then you are becoming in danger of becoming a ruin. Like what happened to Ephesus. Satan also wants, to, wants hatred and division and envy and jealousy to flourish. And that is why together we have to stand on our guard to make sure that these things do not happen. 
God's peace has to be shown. And that's what it means to rekindle your first love. The Ephesians had to pull up their socks and spit in their hands to get back to work. How can they do that? Well, not in their own strength. It says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Come to the last point. Let's not forget that Christ is walking in the midst of his churches. He is walking amongst the seven lampstands, and not as someone disinterested in what is happening. No, as someone who is constantly and intimately involved in that battle. For Christ continues to intercede for his church. He continues to pray for you and for me that Satan may not claim us. He used to pray for this church at St. Albert as well. Most importantly, he is involved as the one who has already conquered. He has already conquered the evil one. He did so for our sakes. We can fight our battles in the victory of Christ. And that is why we do not have to be afraid if we are not able to overcome ourselves. For whatever we need will be supplied by God. As long as you don't walk away from him. As long as you don't think that the battle has to be fought. That that battle is not important enough. You know what happens if you continue the good fight? Well, he says, then you will be allowed to eat from the tree of life. And that tree of life refers to paradise. That's where it stood at that time. But in paradise, because of our sins, we were banished from that tree. However, when you read the last chapters of the book of Revelation, then the restoration of that tree of life is spoken about. In Revelation 22, verse 2, we are told about that new Jerusalem where each, where on each side of the river stands the tree of life. In the first 14 of that chapter, it says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. To be able to eat of the tree of life means to be able to eat of the eternal meal that God gives you and me in the life hereafter. It refers to the wonderful nourishment you will receive, the wonderful refreshment. It refers to a blessed life forever and ever and ever. It refers to the fact that you may dwell with God and taste of his goodness always. It's a goodness that never ceases. Hard work, brothers and sisters, has its reward. Not the reward you receive because of the work, but because of God who enables you to do the work. Whatever you have is from God, including the ability to believe. But you have to use that gift of God. You have to use it to show your love for God and his people. And it is a wonderful reward that God gives us. He gathers a church chosen to eternal life, as it says in Lord's Day 21. What a wonderful prospect for you and for me, for the faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let us not forget, even today, we may already eat of the tree of life. You're doing that right now. You are tasting the benefits. 
God gives us his nourishment. It comes from his word. It comes from his warnings. He reminds us who we are and that we can share in him through his son, Jesus Christ. He conquered, and through him we also will conquer. That's the promise that God gives to his faithful church and that keeps on working. Amen.